Welcome to our CNBC special, Inflation in Your Stocks. I'm Becky Quick. Jim Cramer is off tonight. The market facing down an adversary of old and a formidable one at that. Inflation at the highest levels in over 40 years. It's been a big drag in the markets with the Dow doing something it hasn't done in almost 100 years. And that's being down eight weeks in a row. It hasn't done that since all the way back to 1923. If you're looking at the major averages, they did close higher today, trying to recover from last week's sharp sell-off. Investors at this point searching for footing as the tide of inflation rises, leaving no sector untouched. Tonight, we look for safe havens and solutions. Ahead, you'll be hearing from companies staring down inflation headwinds, including the CEOs of Papa John's and Angie. We're going to tackle the retail washout with expert Matt Boss and put energy in focus with the Oracle of Oil, Rusty Brazil. Opportunity abounds even when your portfolio is under pressure, so let's get started. We're going to kick things off tonight with today's news. Economists lowering their growth forecast. Companies are struggling with that inflation, too, but economists at this point don't see a recession. Let's bring on our own Steve Leisman with more on this. And, Steve, things are getting a little hairier. I guess the good news here is if you ask these experts, they don't see it happening just yet. Yeah, so here's the deal, uh, Becky. A new forecast from the from Nave Economist shows they've marked down their forecast for this year and next, and they've upped their inflation outlooks. But while the 53 forecasters are worried about recession, they haven't penciled it in just yet. The May survey from the National Association for Business Economists shows the median GDP forecast for 2022. It's down to 1.9% from 2.8 in February and to 2.1 from 2.3, and that's for 2023. That's less growth, but hey, it stays above trend. Now, look at the quarterly forecast, and what it shows is a decent rebound in this quarter from that surprise decline we had in the first quarter. Growth then gradually shifts down to 2.1%. But notice that the median for each quarter, it remains positive. No consensus call for economic contraction. However, when asked when the next recession will begin, 52% believe it will set, set in sometime in the next two years. About half of those see it happening in the second half of 2023. This could reflect the heightened concern about recession from high inflation and the rapid rate hikes, but unwillingness yet to make the call because they don't have enough information. Because other parts of the survey show forecasters have pretty upbeat views. Inflation averages 7% this year, but it falls sharply to 3% next year. The unemployment rate, it barely changes, staying at 3.6%, a level that would suggest there will be no recession. And the median forecaster sees the Fed funds rate rising to 3% next year, more or less in line with where the market's price. So the good news is recession is not in the numbers. The bad news, there's clearly more worry about it. 77%, Becky said, the risk to their forecast is to the downside. Uh-oh. Steve, thank you. Stay with us because we're going to talk more about this for more on the macroeconomic picture and the likelihood of a recession similar to the one of the 1970s. Let's bring in Alan Blinder. He's the former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve. And Alan, um, if the risk is to the downside at this point, that's that's a concern. A lot of people are feeling the pain right now. What would you say to those who are worried about a recession? You know, frankly, I think in contrast to the most of those forecasters you were speaking, or Steve was speaking about, a recession is pretty likely. Probably not this year. I mean, we're into May already, and we don't see any imminent signs. Uh, probably fairly likely next year, I would think. I don't mean 89% probability, but, you know, maybe 50, 60% probability, but hopefully a mild one. You know, a recession is negative growth. 
If we have very slow positive growth, it will feel like a recession to a lot of people, and in particular, the unemployment rate will rise. I think if we get a relatively good outcome, it'll be that slow but positive growth. And I think you sound a little more bearish than you did even a month ago. What, what have you seen in the last month that has kind of make you, made you think that this is, is getting to the point of being a little more likely and a little less inevitable? Yeah, I am more bearish. In the, and the answer is simple in two words, supply shocks. Uh, we have sizable supply shock in energy already. We have incipiently, and it's going to be actual very, very soon in some places is, uh, supply shock in food prices. They're both coming from the same place, the war in the Ukraine. And then we have further supply damages or supply chain disruptions, I don't know what you want to call them, in China from their latest uh, lockdown. Uh, all of those things are quite recent developments, and all of them, to my mind, are stagflationary. So, Steve, kind of put that in your pipe and smoke it. You hear what the economists overall say, and, and then you hear somebody like Alan, yeah. who has experience with this, too. Yeah. What do you take out of that? I was going to make a, a, my good friend Governor Blinder a bet that, that there won't be a recession where Uh-oh. I would take him out for a steak dinner if I'm right, and he would take me out to McDonald's if he's right. So, um, but, but I, think, I think the deal is this, um, that the key, we've had several shocks to the economy. I think Alan correctly enumerates them. Uh, both the Ukraine war, you had high inflation going into the war with Ukraine. You have another shock from that. It was like gasoline was 330 and now it's 479. So or, or, or almost approaching five dollars nationally. So so you had that shock. And then I think correctly brings on the next shock, which is the shutdown in uh, in China again. And so there's one missing ingredient, though, which is going to be key. And that is sentiment. And if you want to hold out hope, there won't be a recession. I'll offer two ideas here. One idea idea is that you don't get this uh, negative animal spirit sentiment that causes businesses to really hold back, start to fire, hold back in investment. And the other thing I think that's happening here is the idea that you still have consumers with relatively strong wages, strong employment, and very good balance sheets that we could take a hit to growth that does not mean a contraction. I don't know that I'd really make that bet and certainly not bet against Alan. I'm just offering you what might happen that might contradict the inevitability of a recession. Hey, Alan, I'll, Look, I'll... it's not like I relish a recession. And I think one big positive factor you sort of just touched on it, Steve, is the large cash hoard that American consumers have uh, built up and still have that can tide them over bad times. The only thing I'll push back on that, Steve, is, look, you've got a situation where the cash came in because the federal stimulus was there. We're not going to be getting that anymore. And you've got the idea that that real wages, while we've seen increases in wages, real wages are down because inflation is outpacing the wage gains. And that's that's got to have an impact. So, Becky, Becky, hot, hot, hot off the CNBC economics department calculation presses is the following number. Um, when I look at the total amount of wages and salaries paid year to year growth, it's up 12 percent. You are 100 percent correct. Individually, on average, people's wages are not rising with inflation. But because we put two million more people to work, because those people have had reasonably decent wages that haven't kept up with inflation, those two equal 12 percent. And that is higher than inflation. So the aggregate ability of consumers to spend remains while individually people lose ground.
Okay. And let's hope that continues. I think, yeah, I, 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 I would just say I think it's just I, I, you hear from people every day when, when they pull in with their Ford F-150 and it's 130 bucks to fill up at the, at the gas pump. I mean, that, that is a, a shock that is tough to get over. And, Alan, I'll ask you just a, a final last question on this. We're not dealing with a stagflation situation, I hope. We're not going to be dealing with something like the 1970s. Are we smarter about dealing with this than we were before? I think think we are smarter than dealing with it. I mean, I wrote in the Wall Street Journal the other day, when that hit, central banks didn't know what to make of it. It was some strange new animal they had never seen before. And they were confused and they were erratic. And uh, I think there's a much better understanding of it now. There is this big balance sheet, a consumer balance sheet issue that we said now. And importantly, I wouldn't leave this out. The job the Fed has to do is not what Paul Volcker had to do, which is knock about 10 percentage points off the inflation rate. They have much smaller tasks in front of them and a better economy to uh, start uh, accomplishing that task. So I don't think we're in for anything like what we had back in the 70s or 80s, not even close. Well, from your lips, let's hope that's the case. We'll cross our fingers. And guys, whatever you decide, McDonald's a steak dinner, I want dibs on on, on whoever the winner is. I'm, I'm going to be in that bed, too. Both I'll are good both with sides. me. <laughs> All right. Steve Allen, thank you guys both. It's really great to see you. Yeah. As we mentioned at the top of the hour, the market rebounding today after last week's volatile trading. The Dow, in fact, posting its best day since May 4th. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq closing higher as well, with the Nasdaq breaking a three-day losing streak. Dow's been up 707 points at its high. All three major averages, though, are down for the month. You're talking about the Dow down by about 3 percent, S&P down by 3.5, and the Nasdaq, get this, down by 6.5 percent for the month of May. It has not been a kind one for the market. Got inflation fears out there. That is one of just many worries weighing on the averages. But in times of high volatility, you got to start looking around. Where can investors go for opportunity? Let's bring in Kevin O'Leary. He's venture capitalist and chairman of O'Shares ETFs. And Kevin, you are always on the lookout for opportunities. If we are dealing with high inflation, first of all, do you think it sticks around? And if that's the case, where would you be looking? I'd like to look for businesses that are growing their cash flows, have strong balance sheets and are servicing the demand at the time. And, you know, it's true that we have inflation and there's a lot of concern about a recession. I don't see any of that in the short term. I mean, I'm living in the real world here with over 30 private companies in our portfolio in almost every geography in the U.S. Right now, things are booming. Sales are on fire. Cash flows are better than they've ever been. And I know we should be pessimistic, but I can't get there right now because I'm trying to hire people and I can't find them. Try and find a server in Los Angeles for a kitchen operation. Minimum wage, $15. I have to pay 25 in some cases just to get them to come to work. So there's a lot of demand at all levels for employment. So I'm not that worried about the classic recession. Energy prices, well, that was self-inflicted. We shouldn't have canceled pipelines. That was bad policy. It can be fixed. Supply chains will be fixed as well. So right now, if I were to buy stocks, which I am doing, because, I mean, you know, you can't time the market, Becky. Today's a good example. If you were not in the market today, you don't know which of the 20 or 30 days in the next 12 months give you all the returns. Today was one of them. So trying to time the market in volatility is next to impossible. But let's take something like, Service Corp. Now, maybe people don't know it, but it's probably the biggest 
funeral operator in America. Guess what? In recessions, people keep dying. Who knew? And their business is recession proof. And they have strong cash flows, a good balance sheet. BG, Bungie, you talked about food concerns, 80 supply chains, all kinds of specialized grains and oils all across America. Fantastic. Nestle in Switzerland, a European company in Swiss francs, you know this new act Biden just signed? It's all Nestle. All that stuff is coming from there. Nestle supplying all the baby formula and the baby formula 2002 act or whatever he's calling it. Why not own that company when we're out of baby formula? These are big opportunities, Becky, all through the market that are going to perform very well, regardless of inflation. You know, Kevin, I love the message, the real world ideas and just what you're seeing as a as somebody who's running businesses yourself. I, I think those are all incredibly valid points. I also think just this idea that you can't time markets, that really matters. Um, of the company stocks that you're picking, does any of it have to do with stocks that have come down pretty significantly? I know you talked about Facebook and, and or I, should, I guess I should say Meta and Google being two companies. Do you look at these things and say, hey, this is a bargain versus where we were a year ago? Yes, I do. I say to myself, OK, what's happened here is in many cases, growth rates have not slowed. They're forecasted to slow, but it hasn't happened yet. I think in Q4, we're actually going to beat the estimates that analysts have taken down. Maybe they're forecasting 5%. My bet is it's more like 7, 8, 9% growth for this calendar year. And then all of a sudden you turn the switch into 2023 and say the recession hits hard. I don't think so. This is going to be an inoculated recession. It's already had a vaccine in so many ways. There's so much of the four and a half trillion that was poured into this market still in the pockets of consumers and they haven't had a chance to spend it yet because we have a disrupted supply chain. I've been through many of these cycles. This one is unique and I'm not gonna get too bearish because if I went back to 2020 and looked at what happened in that year, that volatility, the thousand point days up and down, in a matter of 23 days, the entire returns were found. So if you're not in the market for those 23 days, and who knows how many will be in this cycle, you're not going to get any returns. So I'd argue to people, look, taking advantage of this correction, a Johnson & Johnson, a Pfizer, mm-hmm. Google, or Meta, or, and Meta in case of the old Facebook, these are companies that are still cash flowing, massive balance sheets, technology is not going away. Look at Zoom today, everybody thought, you know, this corrected over 78%. And yet they beat their numbers. People are still using these technologies. They're just paying less for them on a PE basis. And that's a gift the market's giving you right now. The only thing I would say is you've got the flip side of that in, in a company like Snap, where you know they're, they're missing and they're going to get punished drastically for, for what happened after hours. What would change your mind about any of this? Or, or is there anything at this point that would sway you or you think that's just a head fake? If I believe, remember, this is this is a supply shock situation, not a demand. Demand is there. Recessions are often characterized by lack of demand because prices are so huge and so high and they go so quickly. But frankly, these interest rates we have right now are still very low historically. People can still afford to buy homes, even though they're up 170 basis points from where they were four months ago. It's still very affordable. What we need is more supply of homes, for example, in every sector I see whether it's insecticides, whether it's commercial kitchens, gym equipment, greeting cards, all of these basics, which represent 66% of our economy, it's supply chain problems. And those are fixable. 
And maybe we fix them in time. Maybe the president looks at the midterms and say, wow, I've got to do something about food prices. I'm going to worry about supply chains in the ports of L.A. and other ports. And I'm going to worry about energy as well. Maybe I should reverse my decision on pipelines, et cetera. Those are policy mistakes that can be fixed. The point is, it's much worse if you lose demand. What we have here is a lack of supply. I like my odds in that situation. Kevin, thank you. It's always great to see you. We appreciate your time tonight. You too. By the way, when we come back, we're going to talk more about what Kevin was just mentioning. That's the issues with housing right now. The major home builders underperforming the broader market as mortgage rates continue to rise and new home construction continues to slow. We'll tell you what it means for your money. Plus, inflation has been a tough pill to swallow for the restaurant space. Restaurants, and pardon the pun here, having to eat those higher costs. We're going to talk exclusively to the CEO of Papa John's to see how his company is navigating this economy's many challenges. That's when the CNBC special Inflation and Your Stocks continues. Well, the once red-hot housing market has been a focal point in the inflation conversation as rising costs continue to weigh down potential homeowners. Let's bring in CNBC's Diana Olick for more on this. Diana, is this still a red-hot housing market or have we seen the peak at this point? Yeah, now that's the big debate going on right now, Becky, because of inflation. It's in both materials to build a home and then everything that goes into a home. So it's hitting builders and consumers equally. Building material prices are up just over 19 percent year over year and close to 36 percent since the start of the pandemic. That's according to the National Association of Home Builders. Part of why they reported a huge drop this month in builder sentiment to a near two-year low. For example, the price of softwood lumber is up 60% from its latest trough last September. Concrete is up nearly 9% year-over-year, and gypsum, that's your wallboard, up 18%. For consumers, furniture prices are up 15% from a year ago. Appliances up 8%. Overall furnishings, decor, also up 8%. And finally, for home buyers, the price of a home is up 21% from a year ago. And take a look at the rate on the 30-year fixed. It was 3.15% a year ago, now around 5.36%. So no wonder mortgage applications to buy a home. They dropped 15% in the last report last week. And single-family housing starts, they dropped 7%. A lot of numbers, I know. But we are hearing from agents on the ground that just a month ago, they were getting eight to ten offers on a home now more like one or two and bidding wars are starting to take a back seat affordability for buyers and costs for builders are all just taking a serious hit becky diana thank you very much right now let's drill down on the rising costs of remodeling and home improvement projects with the ceo of angie that's the company formerly known as angie's list 20 million people use this service annually to find plumbers electricians and other contractors for household projects The CEO, Oshin Hanrahan, joins us right now. And Oshin, what's happening right now? What are you seeing just in terms of inflation in the prices of these projects, given what we've seen for labor costs, given what we've seen just for material costs, too? It's a very volatile time. And, you you know, you, you, you just hit on it with the challenge that people are facing with a major purchase like buying your home. You think about the ingredients that go into people buying their home. It's the price of the home. It's the cost to borrow, so the, the, the rate at which they're borrowing at, and also their ability to, to create, that, uh, create that loan. And then the third is just the raw 
the raw insurance cost as well of taking care of that home. So you put all that together and it's a very volatile time for people to make this incredibly important, important purchase. On top of that, we're seeing something else, which is more and more homes, particularly first, uh, first time and single family homes are actually being bought by institutional investors. And that increase is just adding to the uncertainty that people experience when making this really important purchase for their, for their family. What does that mean? If, if costs are going up, does that mean that people are starting to say, maybe we better hold off on doing some of these projects? Or does it mean that people are saying, OK, instead of moving, we're going to fix up our home and do these projects? What do you hear from the contractors on your site? Well, if you look at this time last year versus Q1 this year, we've definitely seen a softening of consumer demand. So rewind to this time last year, we had the biggest dislocation in supply and demand we'd ever seen. Consumer demand for home services was off the charts. And at the same time, pros were pulling back in some cases from the market, whether it was fear of COVID, supply chain, labor concerns. So that dislocation has definitely normalized, particularly in the last couple of months where we've seen softening consumer demand and we've seen more and more pros join Angie, more and more pros increase their spend on Angie and say to us, hey, our order books are actually a little lighter than we expect them to be. How can we generate more demand? We saw this before in 2007, 2008, when pros needed to generate a lot of work very quickly to, to, to fill the, the gap that they had in consumer demand. And we're not saying it's like 2007, 2008, but there's definitely a softening in consumer demand that means more pros are turning to Angie to drive their business and fill up capacity as those order books soften just a little bit. Look, if, if they want to drive demand, the best way to do that is lower prices. Is that likely to happen anytime soon? Look, I think we all understand the, the supply demand curve and the elasticity, but I think there's so much uh, out of their control in terms of the supply side shocks and materials. You know, we've heard about lumber, we've heard about gypsum, we've heard about steel. That supply side just makes it so hard uh, to reduce price during this time. Perhaps it'll happen, um, but it's also in some ways linked to house prices. You know, people think about uh, the price of home services in terms of the price of their home. And so long as we've got this supply side shock on prices of materials and the, the labor constraints we've got, it's just hard to see pros reducing price during this time. You said that this is not like 2007, 2008, when we were in that housing crisis. Is this in some ways worse, though, when they're dealing with these high costs that they're not able to pass on? What do you hear back from the contractors on your site at this point? When we look at the softening of demand 2007, 2008, it was extreme. What we're seeing now is more a return to the norm. So rewind to 2018, 2019, and you take out 2020 and 2021, what we're seeing, if you drew a line 2018, 2019, you extrapolated that trend, that's where we think we would be in terms of consumer demand for home services. 2020 and 2021 were this anomalous blip where demand just exploded so fast. You had the combination of people at 
home for long periods of time. People's home became the center of their universe in a way that it, you know, frankly, never had before. And you had all the stimulus checks just driving consumer demand when yep. restaurants, bars, entertainment wasn't open to take that right. to take that capital flow. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's what's really happening here. It's just a yep. normalization of supply and demand. Oshin, thank you for your time tonight. It's great to see you. Thanks. Folks, don't go anywhere. We've got much more ahead on the CNBC special, inflation and your stocks. Right now, as we head to a break, let's take a look at some of the best and worst performing Dow stocks today. Tonight, chew on this. How is inflation curbing consumer appetites? The Papa John CEO is taking our order. Then, pumping away your paycheck? The hard truth on fuel in the near future. And shoppers gonna drop. An in-depth dive into an ongoing retail route. That and more when we return to our CNBC special, Inflation and Your Stocks. Next. The bear is roaring and closing in on Wall Street. Fed Chief Jay Powell must move with alacrity to stop inflation. Welcome to a bear market. We just have a period of chronic underperformance because of inflation. Growing concerns about inflation, the war. Inflation's clearly there. I mean, the consumer, my goodness. Companies are concerned about inflation, the possibility of higher prices. It's been simmering and simmering and simmering, and it boiled over. We just really didn't know how bad inflation was. Welcome back, everybody. That scary music tells the story. Inflation and supply chain challenges are taking a bite out of the restaurant space this earnings season. Our own Kate Rogers joins us right now. She's got more on that front. Becky, higher costs have been the storyline this entire earnings season, and some companies are holding up better than others. Yum! Brands missing estimates due to weak sales and China lockdowns weighing on business. Costs were up 10.1% in the quarter, more than doubling the 4.1% revenue growth it saw hitting profit margins. But CEO David Gibbs did have a silver lining in terms of the consumer, saying that if there is cutting back, it'll be favorable to Yum! and in particular Taco Bell, thanks to its price point. Wingstop also missed estimates this quarter and costs were higher than its estimates. Bone-in chicken wing prices up 14 percent from a year ago. The company said it's projecting meaningful deflation, which you don't hear often these days, in wings going forward. Chipotle is yet again a standout in terms of pricing power. The company said this quarter that it had seen, quote, very little resistance from the consumer on price hikes, a similar message we heard in Q4 of last year. The company said menu price hikes helped to offset the margin impact of higher beef, avocado, and labor costs. Prices are up about 10% year-on-year, including a 4% increase at the end of the quarter. Names like Chipotle, Starbucks, and even Sweetgreen have been favored by some analysts because they do tend to cater to a higher-income demographic. But those loyal customer bases don't seem to matter if you take a look at stock performances. Look at this chart. Nearly every name in the restaurant sector is in the red over the last six months. Becky? Thanks, Kate. Kate Rogers again. One company navigating the effects of inflation, though, is Papa John's. That company managing to report better than expected earnings in its latest quarter, despite all these inflationary headwinds. So let's dive into it a little more with Papa John's business and the inflation impact with the CEO, Rob Lynch. All right, Rob, let's talk about this. Um, This is a really difficult environment to manage in. How do you do it? If, If costs are up, how are you able to beat expectations? How are you keeping things in check? 
Well, hi, Becky. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, you know, we're focused on making sure that we balance pricing with productivity. You know, we've spent the last two and a half years gaining a lot of new customers. We've taken our loyalty program from 12 million to 25 million uh, customers. And so we don't want to lose those customers given, you know, some of the short-term inflation challenges that we're seeing. We don't expect the, the inflation to persist. We, it, is, it is a challenging environment. We're seeing costs up about 15%. Our food cost is up about 15% this year. But we do forecast it to mitigate, normalize a bit in the back half of 2022 and improve in 2023. So right now, we're focused on taking the, the right amount of pricing that allows us to mitigate some of that cost, but really trying to be as productive as we can across our company, across our system, so that we can uh, manage the cost without having to take too much pricing and lose all those customers. I mean, that's a, a laudatory strategy if you can do it just by being more efficient. But how much are prices up? If your costs are up about 15 percent, how much do you raise cost? How much do you make up for with efficiencies? So far on our core pricing, we've taken about 7% price increase. About 5% of that is flowing through on a year-on-year basis. But we have other levers to pull. You know, we've been very focused on product innovation for the last few years. And a lot of our innovation that we're launching is on the premium end of the spectrum. So we're allowing customers to self-select into premium innovation that has higher price points, higher margins, and that's helped to mitigate some of the cost impact as well. You guys are a franchise company. A lot of your franchisees may be feeling a little bit differently. What, what do you hear from them? Are they under greater cost pressures right now because they're the ones who have to hire the employees? They're the ones who have to deal with the higher food costs? Well, we're a franchise system, but we own 500 restaurants. And two weeks ago, we had our franchise leadership meeting here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that they're very bullish on the future. We've been able to manage through the pandemic. We've been able to manage through a lot of other challenges for the last two and a half years. We've got a great plan in place. The P&Ls up until, call it Q1 of this year, were as good as they've ever been. And obviously the inflation uh, that we're seeing right now is, is having some margin dilution of impact on all of our P&Ls. But once again, we're very bullish. Uh, staffing is improving. We're seeing workers come back to the restaurants. That's helping us meet the demand. So despite the cost, our demand is up. We delivered our you know, uh, positive comps in Q1, 10 straight quarters of outperformance. So our franchisees are really bullish on the future. Hey, Rob, I, I, we've talked a lot tonight about how the consumer is feeling pretty flush right now. Um, I can understand why they'd be trading up into some of these higher margin products that you have, some of the high end things. If the consumer starts to feel more concerned about things and trades down, can you still offer them a $7 pizza or does that change the dynamic if inflation doesn't go away? You know, we have tried to really approach it with a barbell strategy. We've got premium premium innovation that allows our less price sensitive customers to trade up, self-select into that innovation. But we've always but we've maintained, uh, you know, a, a baseline of really great value that allows our more value-oriented customers to come in and be able to feed a family of four for less than $10. There aren't a lot of restaurant uh, segments or companies that can do that. So we feel like we're really well-positioned to be able to take advantage of, you know, continued consumer um, demand. But also, if we do go into a tougher environment where people are price sensitive, we believe we offer as good a value as anybody. Just really quickly, you say you see light at the end of the tunnel in, t- in terms of the food inflation. What, what makes you think that? Why do you think costs are going to come down? You know, there, there, there's obviously some supply chain challenges. There's obviously, uh, you know, some other macroeconomic and geopolitical issues of impacting a lot of different segments and a lot of different industries. 
for us, our biggest cost is our is the ingredients that go into our food. Cheese being number one, um, we're seeing all time high levels of of cheese prices right now that we don't feel are sustainable or really have are warranted. So we do see some of our core ingredients coming back off. Other things that that go into the whole economic business model. Um, equipment and some other things that that require different types of raw materials, we do think will persist a bit longer. But our our core labor inflation and our core ingredient inflation, we think, is really a um, is is not going to be sustained. Much, you know, past Q2 and into Q3. Rob, thank you very much. Really great seeing you tonight. Thank you, Becky. Mm-hmm. Still ahead on this CNBC special, inflation in your stocks. Could the rise in oil prices be the biggest risk to the economy? An expert weighs in next. Plus, as we take a break, let's take a look at the action in Snap. That stock at this point now down over 30% in the after hours. That is some punishment. By the way, the futures are open. The NASDAQ futures pointing lower right now. This is very thin trading at this hour, but here's an early look at that action. You can see the NASDAQ futures are down by about 177 points. Dow futures down by 112. S&P futures off by 31. Stick around. We'll be right back. If you filled up your gas tank recently, you know the sticker shock facing Americans at the pump right now. High gas prices, of course, have ripple effects across the entire economy. We're talking trucking companies, retailers, manufacturing, you name it. Here right now to help us try and make sense of what's going on in the sector and whether we can expect any relief on the horizon is RBN Energy's founder and executive chairman, Rusty Brazil. Rusty, tell us, is there any relief in sight? It's going to be a while, Becky, and thanks for having me on, by the way. Good to see you. Uh, but, but we, uh, you know, right now, it's, I think it's pretty unlikely that as long as there's still a war going on in Ukraine, we're not going to see below $100 a barrel. And that means what at the pump? Because we have seen gas prices rise even more rapidly than oil prices. So what the heck's going on? It's, it, it's bad news at the pump. So really, there's three reasons why gas, gasoline prices are so much higher than crude and diesel, too, for that matter. Uh, uh, diesel and gasoline since January are up about 55 percent. Crude oil is only up about 30 percent. So you wonder why. Well, really, three things. One is that uh, we've shut down a lot of refinery capacity, not only here in the United States, but around the rest of the world, too. So you have less capacity to produce gasoline and diesel, therefore supply is down, therefore prices are up. Second thing is demand is actually coming back. So jet fuel demand, for example, increased a lot. And as demand increases, that means prices are, are going to kick up again. And finally, what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, that's basically scrambled the supply chain for anything to do with gasoline and diesel. And that messes up uh, uh, petroleum products just like it does everything else. So you put those three things together. That's the reason gasoline prices are, gonna, are so high. As long as crude oil prices are as high as they are, you can expect to see at least as high as we are right now, most likely higher. All right. That stinks for anybody who drives anything. Um, but it also makes me wonder what this means for companies overall. We just talked to the CEO of Papa John's. He thinks that inflation pressures are going to ease in the second half. And, and maybe they will for something like cheese. But if you're talking about a company that still has to get all of the food to all of its different companies, that still has to have drivers who are going to deliver pizzas, could he be in for a nasty surprise? 
I think he could. I mean, somebody's got to get the cheese to the store, right? You still have to use gasoline to do that. At least 99% of all the, the trucks are still using either gasoline or diesel. So, I, I mean, I, I would not be nearly as optimistic. We haven't even mentioned natural gas, and that's a big deal for anybody who's planning to do something like, I don't know, maybe run an air conditioner this summer. What are you thinking just in terms of cost when it comes to natural gas and what that means for electricity generation? Natural gas is up more than diesel, more than gasoline. It's up like 90% or so since January of this year. And, and there's lots of things going on, but one is just the fact that we are exporting a lot of natural gas in the form of LNG. 2016, we didn't export any LNG. We were up to 8 BCF, which is about 8.5% of total production. We were there right before COVID. Now we're up to around 12, which is about 13% of total production. And there's a number of new LNG export facilities that are in the process of being built right now. That's yep. likely to get us up to 20 BCF by the time we get out to five years from now. And you put that together with the fact that the demand is up and production is not rising as quickly as we'd all like to see. Yep. And I think natural gas prices could be the same sort of surprise. And I suspect that natural gas might be used uh, for cooking pizza, although I wouldn't swear to it. Well, Rusty, um, thanks for nothing. <laughs> Sorry about that. Have me on and I'll give you better news next time. Yeah, call me. Rusty, thank you. All it's right. great to see you tonight. The All CNBC right, special investing in your stock will continue right after this. Stick around. Coming up, is Jay Powell living on a prayer? X's and O's of the Fed's inflation strategy and the high cost of retail therapy. Shopping for trends among the retail rubble. More to come on our CNBC special, Inflation and Your Stocks, next. Welcome back, everybody. The Fed isn't just counting on rate hikes and balance sheet reductions to try and help curb inflation. Chair Powell is hoping those moves will set into motion a reverse wealth effect that could also help tame inflation. It's a good trick if you can pull it off. But the truth is that may be harder to achieve than they think. Robert Frank has the story. Well, Becky, Americans have lost over five trillion dollars in stock market wealth so far this year. The Fed is hoping that those losses will cause consumers to spend less and therefore reduce inflation. It's a theory called the negative or the reverse wealth effect. When your 401k or your house falls in value, you're less likely to spend on that big vacation or new car. Studies show that for every dollar of lost wealth, consumers spend about five cents less. But this time around, it may take a lot more wealth destruction to actually impact spending and inflation. That's because Americans added $40 trillion to their wealth during the pandemic. Even with this year's losses, they still have an extra $35 trillion to fuel this spending. Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari asking last week, quote, are these stronger balance sheets leading people to spend more or be more confident? In which case, maybe the Fed has to be a lot more aggressive. Consumer spending is more sensitive to home prices even than stocks. But as we know, home prices are actually still rising. So we're not going to get any help from home prices. Mark Zandi at Moody is saying it will take a market decline of at least 20 percent, lasting at least through this year, 
to have any impact on spending and inflation. So, Becky, bottom line, the Fed is not going to get much help, at least not yet, from the reverse wealth effect. Back to you. That's right. Consumers are like, bring it. Anyway, thank you, Robert. Up next, a number of retail names set to report this week. So which ones are worth a try on? We've got the names to throw in your cart next. And by the way, stay tuned for the news with Shepard Smith beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Retail is one of the most visible inflation zones to both the investors and consumers. Reports from Walmart, Target and others rocking the markets last week with Walmart CEO Doug McMillan calling this current level of inflation unusual. So let's talk more about this with Matt Boss. He's equity research analyst for department stores and specialty soft lines at J.P. Morgan. He just lowered his price target on several retail stocks, including Macy's and Urban Outfitters, both of which are set to report their results this week. And Matt, we keep hearing that the consumer is flush, that the consumer is spending money. But are they spending it on stuff or are they spending it on experiences? Thanks for having me on, Becky. Look, I, I would say there's a couple shifts happening. You have a clear shift away from home, big ticket and furniture. That move is towards travel and leisure. And then secondarily, you have income demographics where the low income consumer, if you think about this impact from housing as well as gas and, uh, and food inflation, those costs in total are up mid to high teens. That, that, that trio makes up around 65% of expenditures for that low-income consumer. So low income is a pressure point, as well as some of the cross-currents that are happening. But I think the biggest thing here, and we hosted a conference about a month back, which seems like an eternity today, but I think the bigger picture here, the consumer does remain resilient. You're just seeing a number of shifts among the spending with a consumer that is increasingly under pressure. All right. So, Matt, tell me, where are the opportunities? That's what we're trying to find tonight. Is there anywhere in the retail world that seems safe? Yeah, there is. In fact, I I think this is the opportunity to build a best-in-class multi-year portfolio. Two buckets. I would say first is defensive growth. We're looking at names like Dollar General, Dollar Tree, Five Below, and then the off-pricers, Ross Stores, Burlington, uh, as well as TJ Maxx. That's the convenience and value intersection that I think historically, that's where, you, that's where you see the consumer gravitate to. Secondarily, the second bucket would be best-in-class global brands. You have an opportunity, in my opinion, multi-year to pick up brands at a discount such as Nike, Lululemon, Levi's, as well as Tapestry, Capri, and Ralph Lauren, all of which come out of this pandemic with stronger, distribu- stronger distribution and more direct-to-consumer, higher structural margins. You know, you're going to see some of the big box retailers push back on their suppliers. They're going to say, we're getting killed with our margins. You're going to have to share the pain. Are there winners and losers that shake out from that, too? Yeah, exactly. I, I actually think the pendulum is swinging back towards the global brands, because what you're seeing is direct-to-consumer or digital e-commerce become paramount. And so as the global brands have expanded their digital footprint on their own, the second thing that they're doing, they're expanding their mono brand stores. So I think it makes it actually harder for general brick and mortar on the wholesale side. I think that's going to be the multi-year headwind for the department stores at the mid-tier, as well as some of specialties. So the bifurcation we see is 
is value convenience. Those would be your brick and mortar dollar stores, discounters and off pricers on the positive side and global brands, as I said, more tied into the casual. I think the mega trend coming out of the pandemic is tied into casualization, which for us is technical, athletic as well as denim. You got about 20 seconds left. Is there a reason you left Walmart and Target out of your your discounters bin that you like? Uh, so we don't cover uh, Walmart and Target. There's okay. another analyst here that does. Um, but, I, but they fit into the value convenience. They're just facing a number of different issues, more on the supply chain that, that uh, was really the, the key driver of, of last week's sell-off. Okay, Matt, we want to thank you very much for being with us tonight. We'll continue to keep our eye on the retail ball. You've got a lot of companies that are yet to report this week, but thank you for your time. It's really great to see you. You got it. Great to be on. Folks, let's take a look at where things stand. You did see stronger markets in the close today, but we've been watching the futures and they have come under a little bit of pressure. So you need to be on the watch for this tomorrow morning. Right now, if you've been watching where the futures stand, you're going to see that the Nasdaq is the one that has come under the most pressure. Last we checked on the Nasdaq, it was down pretty significantly. Stick around and make sure you join us tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. We'll be all over the story. That does it for us tonight on the CNB special. The news with Shepard Smith begins right now.